0: Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm so glad you chose to join me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, but before we do that, let's take some time to settle in. Get cozy in bed, sink deeper into your mattress, and relieve yourself of any pressure to fall asleep. Now. Take the deepest breath you have taken all day. And just when you're ready to exhale, breathe in a tiny bit more. Now let it all go. Do this two or three more times. And with each exhale, let your mind become lighter and focus on my voice. To recap on our last episode, winter gave way to spring and summer at Lowood, and with it followed an outbreak of typhus among the pupils. Nearly half of the girls were infected, and in this lapse in attendance, the healthy students were given far more freedom. One evening, when Jane, and her new friend Mary Ann Wilson were re-entering Lowood after getting lost in the surrounding woods, they saw the surgeon leaving on his horse. Something told her he had come for Helen Burns, who had been taken ill, but not from typhus. She asked the attending nurse how Helen was, and the nurse responded gravely. She told Jane she was not able to visit and that Helen was being held separately in Miss Temple's private room. That night, Jane crept across the school, undetected, to Miss Temple's chamber and found Helen there in a cot, being watched over by a sleeping nurse. Helen was awake and invited Jane into her bed to warm her feet. She spoke of death, calmly and contentedly, and when Jane awoke, she was being carried back to the dormitory. Helen had passed away. The typhus outbreak had caused outrage and called for reform at Lowood, and things got better with Mr. Brocklehurst largely removed from his position of absolute authority. Jane spent a further eight years there, six as a student and two as a teacher, until Miss Temple married and left. At this, Jane decided to broaden her prospects and posted an advertisement in the local paper. And so we pick back up tonight, with Jane walking back to school, having collected a letter from the post office in response to her advertisement. So, just relax and close your eyes as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 10 Continued Various duties awaited me on my arrival. I had to sit with the girls during their hour of study. Then it was my turn to read prayers and to see them to bed. Afterwards, I supped with the other teachers. Even when we finally retired for the night, the inevitable Miss Grice was still my companion. We had only a short end of candle in our candlestick, and I dreaded lest she should talk till it was all burnt out. Fortunately, however, the heavy supper she had eaten... Produced a soporific effect. She was already snoring before I had finished undressing. There still remained an inch of candle. I now took out my letter. The seal was an initial F. I broke it. The contents were brief. If J.E who advertised in the Herald of last Thursday, possesses the acquirements mentioned and if she is in a position to give satisfactory references as to character and competency, a situation can be offered her where there is but one pupil, a little girl under 10 years of age, and where the salary is £30 per annum. J.E. is requested to send references, name, address, and all particulars to the direction, Mrs. Fairfax, Thornfield, near Millcote. I examined the document long. The writing was old-fashioned and rather uncertain like that of an elderly lady. This circumstance was satisfactory. A private fear had haunted me that in thus acting for myself and by my own guidance, I ran the risk of getting into some scrape, and above all things, I wished the result of my endeavors to be respectable and proper I now felt that an elderly lady was no bad ingredient in the business I had on hand. Mrs. Fairfax, I saw in her black gown and widow's cap, frigid perhaps, but not uncivil, a model of elderly English respectability. Thornfield That, doubtless, was the name of her house, a neat, orderly spot, I was sure, though I failed in my efforts to conceive a correct plan of the premises. Millcode. I brushed up my recollections of the map of England. Yes, I saw it. Both the shire and the town The Shire was 70 miles nearer London than the remote county where I now resided. That was a recommendation to me. I longed to go where there was life and movement. Millcote was a large manufacturing town on the banks of a river. A busy place enough, doubtless. So much the better would be a complete change at least, not that my fancy was much captivated by the idea of long chimneys and clouds of smoke. But, I argued, Thornfield will probably be a good way from the town. Here, the socket of the candle dropped and the wig went out. Next day, new steps were to be taken. My plans could no longer be confined to my own mind. I must impart them in order to achieve their success. Having sought and obtained an audience of the superintendent during the noontide recreation, I told her I had a prospect of getting a new situation where the salary would be double what I now received, for at Lowood, I only got £15 per annum. And I requested she would break the matter for me to Mr. Brocklehurst or some of the committee and ascertain whether they would permit me to mention them as references. She obligingly consented to act as mediatrix in the matter, The next day, she laid the affair before Mr. Brocklehurst, who said that Mrs. Reed must be written to, as she was my natural guardian. A note was accordingly addressed to that lady, who returned for answer that, "'I might do as I pleased. She had long relinquished all interference in my affairs.'" This note went the round of the committee, and at last, after what appeared to me a most tedious delay, formal leave was given me to better my condition if I could, and an assurance added that as I had always conducted myself well, both as teacher and pupil at Lowood, A testimonial of character and capacity, signed by the inspectors of that institution, should forthwith be furnished me. This testimonial I accordingly received in about a month, forwarded a copy of it to Mrs. Fairfax, and got that lady's reply, stating that she was satisfied, and fixing that day fortnight as the period for my assuming the post of governess in her house. I now busied myself in preparations. The fortnight passed rapidly. I had not a very large wardrobe, though it was adequate to my wants, and the last day sufficed to pack my trunk the same I had brought with me eight years ago from Gateshead. The box was corded, the card nailed on. In half an hour, the carrier was to call for it to take it to Loughton, where I myself was to repair at an early hour the next morning to meet the coach. I had brushed my black, stiff travelling dress Prepared my bonnet, gloves, and muff, sought in all my drawers to see that no article was left behind, and now, having nothing more to do, I sat down and tried to rest. I could not. Though I had been on foot all day, I could not now repose an instant. I was too much excited. A phase of my life was closing tonight, a new one opening tomorrow. Impossible to slumber in the interval. I must watch feverishly while the change was being accomplished. Miss, said a servant who met me in the lobby where I was wandering like a troubled spirit. A person below wishes to see you carrier, no doubt, I thought, and ran downstairs without inquiry. I was passing the back parlour or teacher's sitting room, the door of which was half open to go to the kitchen when someone ran out. "'It's her. I'm sure I could have told her anywhere,' said the individual." who stopped my progress and took my hand. I looked. I saw a woman attired like a well-dressed servant, matronly yet still young, very good-looking, with black hair and eyes and lively complexion. Well, who is it? she asked. In a voice and with a smile, I half-recognized. You've not quite forgotten me, I think, Miss Jane. In another second, I was embracing and kissing her rapturously. Bessie, Bessie, that was all I said, whereat she half laughed, half cried, and we both went into the parlor. By the fire stood a little fellow of three years old in plaid frock and trousers. That is my little boy, said Bessie directly. Then you were married, Bessie, I asked. Yes, nearly five years since to Robert Plevin, the coachman, and I've a little girl besides Bobby there that I've christened Jane. And you don't live at Gateshead? I inquired. I live at the lodge. The old porter has left, she answered. Well, and how do they all get on? Tell me everything about them, Bessie. But sit down first. And Bobby, come and sit on my knee, will you? but Bobby preferred sidling over to his mother. You're not grown so very tall, Miss Jane, nor so very stout, continued Mrs. Levin. I dare say they've not kept you too well at school. Miss Reed is the head and shoulders taller than you are, and Miss Georgiana would make two of you in a brick. Georgiana is handsome, I suppose, Bessie, I asked. Very. She went up to London last winter with her mama, and there everybody admired her. And a young lord fell in love with her, but his relations were against the match. And what do you think? He and Miss Georgiana made it up to run away. They were found out and stopped. was Miss Reed that found them out. I believe she was envious. Now she and her sister lead a cat and dog life together. They're always quarrelling. Well, and what of John Reed? I asked. Oh, he's not doing so well as his mama could wish. He went to college and he got plucked, I think they call it, Then his uncles wanted him to be a barrister and study the law. But he is such a dissipated young man. They will never make much of him, I think. And Mrs. Reed? I inquired. Mrs. looks stout and is well enough in the face. I think she's not quite easy in her mind. Mr. John's conduct does not please her spends a great deal of money did she send you here Bessie no indeed I have long wanted to see you and when I heard that there had been a letter from you and that you would go into another part of the country I thought I'd just set off get a look at you before you were quite out of my reach I'm afraid you were disappointed in me Bessie I said this, laughing. I perceived that Bessie's glance, though it expressed regard, did in no shape denote admiration. No, Miss Jane, not exactly. You were genteel enough. You look like a lady. That is as much as I ever expected of you. You were no beauty as a child, I smiled at Bessie's frank answer. I felt that it was correct, but I confess I was not quite indifferent to its import. At 18, most people wish to please, and the conviction that they have not an exterior likely to second that desire brings anything but gratification. "'I dare say you were clever, though,' continued Bessie by way of solace. What can you do? Can you play the piano? A little, I replied. There was one in the room. Bessie went and opened it and then asked me to sit down and give her a tune. I played a waltz or two and she was charmed. Miss Reeds could not play as well, she said exultingly. I always said you would surpass them in learning. Can you draw? There is one of my paintings over the chimney piece, I answered. It was a landscape in watercolours of which I had made a present to the superintendent in acknowledgement of her obliging mediation with the committee on my behalf and which she had framed and glazed. Well, That is beautiful, Miss Jane. It is as fine a picture as any Miss Reed's drawing master could paint, let alone the young ladies themselves who could not come near it. And have you learnt French? Yes, Bessie. I can both read it and speak it. And you can work on muslin and canvas? She asks. I can. You are quite a lady, Miss Jane. I knew you would be. You'll get on whether your relations notice you or not. There was something I wanted to ask you. You ever heard anything from your father's kinsfolk? Yes. Never in my life, I answered. Well, you know misses always said they were poor, quite despicable and they may be poor but I believe they are as much gentry as the reeds are. For one day, nearly seven years ago, a Mr. Eyre came to Gateshead and wanted to see you. Mrs. said you were at school fifty miles off. He seemed so much disappointed for he could not stay. He was going on a voyage to a foreign country and a ship was to sail from London in a day or two he looked quite a gentleman I believe he was your father's brother what foreign country was he going to Bessie an island thousands of miles off where they make wine she replied Madeira I suggested yes that's it that's the very word so he went I asked. Yes, he did not stay many minutes in the house. Mrs. was very high with him. She called him afterwards a sneaking tradesman. My Robert believes he was a wine merchant. Very likely, I returned. Or perhaps a clerk or agent to a wine merchant. Bessie and I conversed about old times an hour longer, and then she was obliged to leave me. I saw her again for a few minutes the next morning at Loughton, while I was waiting for the coach. We parted, finally, at the door of the Brocklehurst Arms there. Each went her separate way. She set off for the brow of Lowood Fell to meet the conveyance which was to take her back to Gateshead. I mounted the vehicle which was to bear me to new duties and a new life in the unknown environs of Millcote. Chapter 11 a new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play, and when I draw up the curtain this time, reader, you must fancy you see a room in the George Inn at Millcote, with such large figured papering on the walls as inn rooms have, such a carpet, such furniture, such ornaments on the mantelpiece, such prints, including a portrait of George III and another of the Prince of Wales, and a representation of the death of Wolf. All this is visible to you by the light of an oil lamp hanging from the ceiling and by that of an excellent fire near which I sit in my cloak and bonnet. My muff and umbrella lie on the table, and I am warming away the numbness and chill contracted by sixteen hours' exposure to the rawness of an October day. I left Loughton at four o'clock a.m., and the Millcote town clock is now just striking eight. Reader, though I look comfortably accommodated, I am not very tranquil in my mind. I thought when the coach stopped here, there would be someone to meet me. I looked anxiously round as I descended the wooden steps, the boots placed for my convenience, Expecting to hear my name pronounced, to see some description of carriage waiting to convey me to Thornfield, nothing of the sort was visible, and when I asked a waiter if anyone had been to inquire after a Miss Eyre, I was answered in the negative, so I had no resource but to request to be shown into a private room. And here I am, waiting, while all sorts of doubts and fears are troubling my thoughts. It is a very strange sensation to inexperienced youth to feel itself quite alone in the world, cut adrift from every connection, uncertain whether the port to which it is bound can be reached and prevented by many impediments from returning to that it has left. The charm of adventure sweetens that sensation, the glow of pride warms it, then the throb of fear disturbs it, and fear with me became predominant when half an hour elapsed and still I was alone. I bethought myself to ring the bell. Is there a place in this neighborhood called Thornfield? I asked the waiter who answered the summons. Thornfield? I don't know, ma'am. I'll inquire at the bar. He vanished, but reappeared instantly. Is your name Air, miss? He asked. Yes? I answered, "'Person here waiting for you,' he replied. I jumped up, took my muff and umbrella, and hastened into the inn passage. A man was standing by the open door, and in the lamplit street, I dimly saw a one-horse conveyance. "'This will be your luggage, I suppose,' said the man, rather abruptly when he saw me, pointing to my trunk in the passage. Yes, I replied. He hoisted it onto the vehicle, which was a sort of car, and then I got in. Before he shut the door, I asked him how far it was to Thornfield. A matter of six miles, he replied. How long shall we be before we get there? About an hour and a half, he returned. He fastened the car door, climbed to his own seat outside, and we set off. Our progress was leisurely and gave me ample time to reflect. I was content to be at length so near the end of my journey and as I leaned back in the comfortable, though not very elegant, conveyance, I meditated much at my ease. I suppose, thought I, judging from the plainness of the servant and carriage, Mrs. Fairfax is not a very dashing person, so much the better." I never lived amongst fine people but once, but I was very miserable with them. I wonder if she lives alone except this little girl. If so, and if she is in any degree amiable, I shall surely be able to get on with her. I will do my best. It is a pity that doing one's best does not always answer. At Lowood, indeed, I took that resolution, kept it, and succeeded in pleasing. But with Mrs. Reed, I remember my best was always spurned with scorn. I pray God Mrs. Fairfax may not turn out a second Mrs. Reed, but if she does, I'm not bound to stay with her. Let the worst come to the worst." I can advertise again. How far are we down the road now, I wonder? I let down the window and looked out. Milcote was behind us. Judging by the number of its lights, it seemed a place of considerable magnitude, much larger than Loughton. We were now, as far as I could see, on a sort of common There were houses scattered all over the district. I felt we were in a different region to Lowood, more populous, less picturesque, more stirring, less romantic. The roads were heavy, the night misty. My conductor let his horse walk all the way, and the hour and a half extended I verily believe, to two hours. At last, he turned in his seat and said, You're not so far from Thornfield now. Again, I looked out. We were passing a church. I saw its low, broad tower against the sky, and its bell was tolling a quarter I saw a narrow galaxy of lights, too, on a hillside, marking a village or hamlet. About ten minutes after, the driver got down and opened a pair of gates. We passed through, and they clashed behind us. We now slowly ascended a drive and came upon the long front of a house candlelight gleamed from one curtain bow window. All the rest were dark. The car stopped at the front door. It was opened by a maid servant. I alighted and went in. Will you walk this way, mum? said the girl, and I followed her across a square hall with high doors all round. She ushered me into a room whose double illumination of fire and candle at first dazzled me, contrasting as it did with the darkness to which my eyes had been for two hours inured. When I could see, however, a cozy and agreeable picture presented itself to my view. A snug, small room a round table by a cheerful fire, an armchair high-backed and old-fashioned, wherein sat the neatest imaginable little elderly lady in widow's cap, black silk gown, and snowy muslin apron, exactly what I had fancied Mrs. Fairfax, only less stately, and milder-looking. She was occupied in knitting. A large cat sat demurely at her feet. Nothing, in short, was wanting to complete the bean ideal of domestic comfort. A more reassuring introduction for a new governess could scarcely be conceived, There was no grandeur to overwhelm, no stateliness to embarrass. And then, as I entered, the old lady got up and promptly and kindly came forward to meet me. How do you do, my dear? I'm afraid you have had a tedious ride. John drives so slowly. You must be cold. Come to the fire. Mrs. Fairfax, I suppose, said I. Yes, you are right. Do sit down. She conducted me to her own chair and then began to remove my shawl and untie my bonnet strings. I begged she would not give herself so much trouble. Oh, it is no trouble. I dare say your own hands are almost numbed with cold. Leah, make a little hot drink and cut a sandwich or two. Here are the keys of the storeroom. And she produced from her pocket a most housewifely bunch of keys and delivered them to the servant. Now, Ben, draw nearer to the fire. She continued. You've brought your luggage with you, haven't you, my dear? Yes, mom, I replied. I'll see it carried into your room, she said and bustled out. She treats me like a visitor, thought I. I little expected such a reception. I anticipated only coldness and stiffness. This is not like what I have heard of the treatment of governesses, but I must not exult too soon. She returned with her own hands, clearing her knitting apparatus and a book or two from the table to make room for the tray which Leah now brought, and then herself handed me the refreshments. I felt rather confused at being the object of more attention than I had ever before received, and that, too, shown by my employer and superior. But as she did not herself seem to consider she was doing anything out of her place, I thought it better to take her civilities quietly. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? I asked when I had partaken of what she offered me. What did you say, my dear? I'm a little deaf, returned the good lady, approaching her ear to my mouth. I repeated the question more distinctly. Miss Fairfax? Oh, you mean Miss Barons, Barons is the name of your future pupil. Indeed, then she is not your daughter, said I. No, I have no family. I should have followed up my first inquiry by asking in what way Miss Barons was connected with her, but I recollected it was not polite. ask too many questions. Besides, I was sure to hear in time. "'I am so glad,' she continued as she sat down opposite to me and took the cat on her knee. "'I am so glad you are come. It will be quite pleasant living here now with a companion,' To be sure, it is pleasant at any time, for Thornfield is a fine old hall, rather neglected of late years, perhaps, but still, it is a respectable place. Yet, you know, in winter time, one feels dreary, quite alone in the best quarters. I say alone. Leah is a nice girl, to be sure. John and his wife are very decent people, but then you see, they are only servants, and one can't converse with them on terms of equality. One must keep them at due distance for fear of losing one's authority. I'm sure last winter, it was a very severe one if you recollect, and when it did not snow, it rained and blew. Not a creature but the butcher and the postman came to the house from November till February. I really got quite melancholy with sitting, night after night, alone. I had Leah in to read to me sometimes, but I don't think the poor girl liked the task much. She felt it confining. In spring and summer, one got on better. Sunshine and long days make such a difference. And then, just at the commencement of this autumn, little Adela Barnes came and her nurse and a child makes a house alive all at once. And now you are here, I shall be quite happy. My heart really warmed to the worthy lady as I heard her talk, and I drew my chair a little nearer to her and expressed my sincere wish that she may find my company as agreeable as she anticipated. "'But I'll not keep you sitting up late tonight,' said she. "'It is on the stroke of twelve now and you have been traveling all day. You must feel tired. If you have got yourself well warmed, I'll show you to your bedroom.' I have had the room next to mine prepared for you. It is only a small apartment, but I thought you would like it better than one of the large front chambers. To be sure, they have a finer furniture, but they are so dreary and solitary, I never sleep in them myself." I thanked her for her considerate choice and as I really felt fatigued with my long journey, expressed my readiness to retire. She took her candle, and I followed her from the room. First, she went to see if the hall door was fastened. Having taken the key from the lock, she led the way upstairs. The steps and banisters were of oak the staircase window was high and latticed, both it and the long gallery into which the bedroom doors opened looked as if they belonged to a church rather than a house. A very chill and vault-like air pervaded the stairs and gallery, suggesting cheerless ideas of space and solitude, and I was glad when finally ushered into my chamber to find it of small dimensions and furnished in ordinary, modern style. When Mrs. Fairfax had bidden me a kind good night and I had fastened my door, gazed leisurely round and in some measure effaced the eerie impression made by that wide hall, that dark and spacious staircase, and that long, cold gallery. By the livelier aspect of my little room, I remembered that, after a day of bodily fatigue and mental anxiety, I was now, at last, in safe haven. The impulse of gratitude swelled my heart, and I knelt down at the bedside and offered up thanks where thanks were due, not forgetting ere I rose to implore aid on my further path and the power of meriting the kindness which seemed so frankly offered me before it was earned. My couch had no thorns in it that night, my solitary room no fears, and once weary and content, I slept soon and soundly. When I awoke, it was broad day, The chamber looked such a bright little place to me as the sun shone in between the cheerful blue chintz window curtains showing papered walls and a carpeted floor, so unlike the bare planks and stained plaster of low wood that my spirits rose at the view. Externals have a great effect on the young. I thought that a fairer era of life was beginning for me, one that was to have its flowers and pleasures as well as its thorns and toils. My faculties, roused by the change of scene, the new field offered to hope, seemed all astir. I cannot precisely define what they expected, but it was something pleasant, not perhaps that day or that month, but at an indefinite future period. I rose, I dressed myself with care, obliged to be plain, for I had no article of attire, it was not made with extreme simplicity. I was still by nature solicitous to be neat. It was not my habit to be disregardful of appearance or careless of the impression I made. On the contrary, I ever wished to look as well as I could and to please as much as my want of beauty would permit. I sometimes regretted that I was not handsomer. I sometimes wished to have rosy cheeks, a straight nose, and small cherry mouth. I desired to be tall, stately, and finely developed in figure. I felt it a misfortune I was so little, so pale, and had features so irregular and so marked. And why had I these aspirations and these regrets? It would be difficult to say. I could not then distinctly say it to myself, Yet I had a reason, and a logical, natural reason, too. However, when I had brushed my hair very smooth and put on my black frock, which, Quaker-like as it was, at least had the merit of fitting to a nicety and adjusted my clean, white tucker. I thought I should do respectably enough to appear before Mrs. Fairfax and that my new pupil would not at least recoil from me with antipathy. Having opened my chamber window… And seeing that I had left all things straight and neat on the table, I ventured forth. Traversing the long and matted gallery, I descended the slippery steps of oak. Then I gained the hall. I halted there for a minute. I looked at some pictures on the walls, one I remember represented a grim man in a cuirass, and worn a lady with powdered hair and a pearl necklace, at a bronze lamp pendant from the ceiling, at a great clock whose case was of oak, curiously carved and ebony black with time and rubbing. Everything appeared very stately and imposing to me, but then I was so little accustomed to grandeur. The hall door, which was half of glass, stood open. I stepped over the threshold. It was a fine autumn morning. The early sun shone serenely, in browned groves and still green fields. Advancing onto the lawn, I looked up and surveyed the front of the mansion. It was three stories high, of proportions not vast, though considerable. A gentleman's manor house, not a nobleman's seat. Battlements round the top, gave it a picturesque look. Its grey front stood out well from the background of a rockery whose cawing tenants were now on the wing. They flew over the lawn and grounds to alight in a great meadow, from which these were separated by a sunk fence and where an array of mighty old thorn trees, strong, knotty, and broad as oaks, at once explained the etymology of the mansion's designation. Farther off were hills, not so lofty as those round Lowwood, nor so craggy nor so like barriers of separation from the living world, but yet quiet and lonely hills enough, and seeming to embrace Thornfield, with a seclusion I had not expected to find existent so near the stirring locality of Millcote, a little hamlet whose roofs were blent with trees, straggled up the side of one of these hills. The church of the district stood near Thornfield. Its old tower top looked over a knoll between the house and gates. I was yet enjoying the calm prospect and pleasant fresh air, yet listening with delight to the cawing of the rooks, yet surveying the wide, hoary front of the hall and thinking what a great place it was for one lonely little dame like Mrs. Fairfax to inhabit, when that lady appeared at the front door. What? Out already? said she. I see you are an early riser. I went up to her and was received with an affable kiss and shake of the hand. "'How do you like Thornfield?' she asked. I told her I liked it very much. "'Yes,' she said. "'It is a pretty place, but I fear it will be getting out of order.' Unless Mr. Rochester should take it into his head to come and reside here permanently, or at least visit it rather oftener. Great houses and fine grounds require the presence of the proprietor. Mr. Rochester, I exclaimed. Who is he? The owner of Thornfield. She responded quietly. Did you not know he was called Rochester? Of course I did not. I had never heard of him before. But the old lady seemed to regard his existence as a universally understood fact with which everybody must be acquainted by instinct. I thought, I continued… Thornfield belonged to you. To me? Bless you, child. What an idea. To me, I am only the housekeeper, the manager. To be sure, I am distantly related to the Rochesters by my mother's side, or at least my husband was. He was a clergyman, incumbent of Hey, that little village yonder on the hill, and that church near the gates was his. The present Mr. Rochester's mother was a Fairfax and second cousin to my husband, but I never presume on the connection. In fact, it is nothing to me. I consider myself quite in the light of an ordinary housekeeper. My employer is always civil, and I expect nothing more. And the little girl, my pupil, I asked. She is Mr. Rochester's ward. He commissioned me to find a governess for her. He intended to have her brought up in the Shire, I believe. Here she comes with her born, as she calls her nurse. The enigma then was explained. This affable and kind little widow was no great dame, but a dependent like myself. I did not like her the worse for that. On the contrary, I felt better pleased than ever. The equality between her and me was real not the mere result of condescension on her part. So much the better. My position was all the freer.